Voices Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. And along the way, we hear about beliefs that are unfamiliar, sometimes completely outside our own experience, which is why I'm excited to share my conversation with Sarah Venter and Ash Sanders. They're producers of an award-winning podcast series, Unfinished Short Creek. That title is drawn from a place where the story unfolds, a community that sits in both Utah and Arizona, and a place that has become synonymous with fundamentalist groups that broke away from the Church of Latter-day Saints to create their own insular community, where they recognize their own prophets and practice their faith in accordance with their deeply held beliefs. The 10-episode podcast series, Unfinished Short Creek, takes us into the present-day world of the FLDS. That stands for the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. Today, it's a community that is divided. And according to Venter and Sanders, it's also in the process of healing. Short Creek may sound familiar when you hear the name of its most infamous prophet, Warren Jeffs. In 2011, he was prosecuted and convicted on two counts of sexual assault of a child and is currently serving a life term plus 20 years. He'll be eligible for parole in 2032. Warren Jeff's story has inspired many fictional accounts, including the HBO series Big Love. But unfinished, Short Creek is so different. For starters, it's not centered on Warren Jeff's, but the community he leaves behind. And it's not fiction. Co-hosts and producers Sarah Venter and Ash Sanders bring a journalistic integrity, embedding building relationships, but also seeking to tell a deeper story. And that made folks like Elisa Wall comfortable with sharing their own. Now, before we listen to a short excerpt from the podcast where Elise is talking with Sarah, I want to just offer a word of caution about this week's episode. It's going to feature clips, and we're going to talk about things that include heavy topics, There'll be emotional reflections about trauma, and that may be upsetting for some and not appropriate for younger audiences. I was 14 years old when I was told that, that I was to be married. And at some point in my life, I knew that I was going to be married because that was the only path that I got as a woman. And I really did want it, but just not at 14. And Warren was the one that told me that I needed to move forward with this marriage because if I didn't, then I was no longer welcome in the community. And I found myself driving with my future husband and his family and my mother and Warren Jeffs and his posse of religious leaders to a dingy hotel where I was married to my first cousin inside of a hotel room. There was this moment where my mom stood up and took my hand because they couldn't get me to say I do. They couldn't get me to agree to this marriage. And she stood up and held my hand and just gripped it. And I had this overwhelming realization that it wasn't just my salvation hanging in the balance. It was hers. And it was my little sisters. And it was my older sisters. It was my entire family. 
and that we would all go to hell if I chose to fight this any longer. That day in the hotel, Elisa Wall chose not to send her entire family to hell. At age 14, she was married. Ash, what drew you to telling the story of Short Creek? So I grew up in Salt Lake City um, as a mainstream Mormon. And so I always grew up knowing about Shore Creek and the fundamentalist Mormon community down there. But it was always uh, caricatured to me, you know, when other mainstream Mormons talked about it as, oh, yeah, kind of our weird cousins down south. And of course, uh, that was supposed to make me less interested in that community, but it made me way more interested in that community. And so I became really curious, you know, what happened in my religious history? Um, I'm not a practicing Mormon anymore, but I grew up LDS. What happened in my religious history that caused this split? You know, why do we have these attitudes towards our fundamentalist kind of brothers and sisters? And also then, of course, the world was obsessed with the story of Warren Jeffs and all the sensational things that happened in that community. But I found myself getting really curious about the community at large and, um, you know, how people lived, how they worshipped, what they believed, how they felt about outsiders. And when the story kind of blew up and it became this big story about a town kind of trying to figure out its future in the wake of this very powerful prophet who had been imprisoned, um, I became interested in what does that process look like and how do people chart a new way forward after they've been living a certain way for so long? What are the challenges? You know, what's what's that about? And so that really drew me in as somebody who grew up religiously in a slightly different way. What about for you, Sarah? What drew you to the story? I think similar to Ash, I was interested in some of the questions about what happens after this big, huge news story. You know, I grew up in Phoenix also. I had also, you know, Short Creek was in the news a lot. The FLDS Church was in the news a lot. I had, you know, just sort of heard about the community growing up. Um, and then in 2016, I was working for the public radio station in Phoenix, and uh, I helped cover a trial. The Department of Justice sued the towns of Colorado City and Hilldale, which make up Short Creek for religious discrimination. And it was a pretty landmark case. Um, because the federal government was accusing these towns of violating the Constitution, of violating the Establishment Clause, and running a town as an arm of a church. So I helped cover that case, um, and in the process met some people who lived in Short Creek, who were witnesses, um, and kept in touch with them, and then got an invitation to visit the community for a Fourth of July event. When I went, it was just nothing like what I expected. I remember hearing about how this was this, you know, scary place and you got to be careful when you go and church security is going to follow you everywhere and there's all these dangerous people. And when I went, I saw a community that was, you know, in the midst of doing some really intense work healing. And that really, really drew me, like, I wanted to know more about what that looked like and and how people kind of move forward from an event like that, both people in and out of the church. That's an interesting way to come into this. I mean, you go and you discover that your perceptions of what this community would be like were so different from what you were witnessing on the ground. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think any time that you have an insular community or a religion that is 
frequently sensationalized in the media or that is often misunderstood or even just is really different from maybe the the religious framework of the majority of people in the country, then I think it's really easy to have perceptions of a place that are kind of outlandish. If you've ever watched or listened to or read any media about Short Creek, the story is very familiar. I mean, there's TV shows like Escaping Polygamy, which are all about people trying to escape communities like Short Creek. Um, there's, you know, Lifetime movies about Warren Jeffs. So like, the sensational level is very high. And I think that when that happens, it's impossible for that not to kind of seep into your subconscious and, and get in your head about what to expect. And then I think, a huge part of the work we do as journalists is just showing up to communities. There were certainly journalists who have covered Short Creek who spent a lot of time there. But I do think that if you can get yourself to go there kind of with an open mind and just kind of observe what's happening, it may not always be as scary or sensational or crazy as as the things that you've seen on TV before. And that was certainly my experience. Ash, you're trying to tell a story that doesn't feed into the caricature. Were you concerned that it would be dismissed or were you concerned at all that 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 is some that that, that was a big wall to climb over? Yeah, definitely. We had uh, pretty endless conversations about that. Um, we knew both Sarah and I and our whole team going in that we wanted to tell the story of the community of Short Creek, not just the Warren Jeffs story. But Warren Jeffs is obviously a huge part of that community. For folks who don't know, this is a community of fundamentalist polygamous uh, believers who practice a a uh, very uh, intense version of Mormonism. You know, they share things in common. They live in the middle of the desert. They don't like the federal government. They want to be left alone to basically do their own things. But a lot of the things that they did broke a lot of, you know, laws of the land and flew in the face of a lot of cultural norms um, in Utah and Arizona and in the country. So we knew that a lot of people would probably start listening because they were interested in the Warren Jeff story. But we wanted... Uh, to kind of make that narrative as complex as it actually is, because I think people have a tendency to other these places, places like Short Creek, and say, oh, the people's lives there are fundamentally different from mine. They have different problems. They have different beliefs. They are just different from me. But the experience I had, and I know that Sarah had a lot being in Short Creek, is, oh, this community is actually struggling with some pretty fundamental questions. Are we allegiant to the prophet or are we allegiant to America? Are we going to stick with our family or be authentic by leaving? Are we going to come back to a town that hurt us and try to make it better? Are we going to stay away? Um, are we going to rebuild the same thing that we built before? Are we going to do it differently and how? These are very human questions. So we went in knowing that a lot of people are interested in this town for one reason, but we know that there are so many reasons to be interested in this town. And that's what we wanted to show because that was the reality of the town as we experienced it. And as so many of the people we spoke to and interviewed experienced it. Mm. You, you know, as you're describing that, I'm curious what the reaction has been and what you've heard from listeners. We've had a lot of really interesting reactions. We've heard from a lot of people who said that they related to the podcast, even though they didn't grow up Mormon or they didn't grow up in a fundamentalist um, setting. We've had people reach out to us and say, um, you know, I had never thought about people who are part of the FLDS church in the way that you 
explained it. And that was a really humanizing thing. And I'm so glad we heard that. We also heard from people who said, you were too sympathetic to the FLDS, and you defended people, you know, whose profit engaged in child abuse, and that was really inexcusable. Um, and we've heard from people who said you were too hard on the FLDS, and you, um, you know, took the word of the ex-believers above all. And and so we've really gotten this interesting mix of reactions that I think get at the complexities and the nuances in the story. So many different kinds of people saw themselves in the story. I had people write to me and say, thank you for doing a story about women empowering themselves in a community that disempowered them. And I had people say, like, thank you for talking about why some people choose to stay in a religion or return to a community that's hard. And some people said, thanks for doing this great story about democracy and human rights, you know, and I think so many people kind of saw themselves in the story in a really different way. And I think that's because all those pieces are there in that story. It's a really kaleidoscopic, complicated, beautiful, big, crazy story. And I think that there are ways for a lot of people to see their own struggles or their own life experiences reflected back to them by a community that surprises them. How do people on the ground, members of this community, talk about their relationship to the state? How do they talk about their understanding or the way that they're viewed by those on the outside? Yeah, it really depends on who you're talking to in Short Creek more than almost any other place I've been to. But, you know, I can say growing up, even as a mainstream Mormon um, in church, we constantly got the origin story that we were a persecuted people. You know, we moved from town to town, trying to build the ideal society, you know, God's city on earth is basically what Mormons have been trying to build uh, since the beginning, and that every time we tried to do that, people came at us and took away our rights, kicked us out, expelled us, and we had to start all over again. So that story is really burned into the Mormon psyche. And for fundamentalists, it's even more important because they split off from the mainstream church because they thought the mainstream church was selling out, essentially. And they wanted to continue to practice a pretty demanding religious philosophy of polygamy and living and sharing things in common and living in and building up the city of God. And so they moved to this really, really remote place to do that. And their attitude was like, we're leaving society and now society, you leave us alone. But over the years, the federal government didn't do that. You know, they raided the community multiple times. One of the biggest ones was in the 50s. And they separated, you know, women and children, entire families sent them into, you know, homes with strangers in Arizona, all to kind of stamp out this like moral sin, quote unquote, of polygamy. Um, And so they've grown up with a very strong story that the outside world is not their friend, and that they're going to come in and kind of try to dismantle their way of life. And they believe that because there's evidence of that, you know, the government has done that. And I think Short Creek poses this question to the whole country, like, what, what are the limits of religious rights? At what point, um, you know, is it the government persecuting you? And at what point is it, you know, you as a believer doing things that actually harm other people or infringe on the rights of other people? So depending on who you talk to in the town, if you're talking to an ex-believer, whatever their actual politics are, they are much more likely to say to you, yes, the federal government defended us and protected us when we came back to our childhood homes and tried to, you know, 
claim a house or set up our water utilities or whatever, the FLDS church was discriminating against us. They were trying to keep us from living in our childhood home, and the federal government stepped in and tried to make this place safe for non-believers. But if you talk to believers, they're much more likely to say to you, this is just another example of outsiders who don't understand us and who don't like us coming into our community that we built on our principles and trying to basically take it apart and kick us out again. You know, another example of this story. The government, especially the federal government, is a very charged topic in Short Creek. Some people see them as interlopers and um, kind of invading the place, and other people see them as as kind of, you know, rescuers, people who helped set the town on a fair path so that ex-believers weren't discriminated against. We're talking with Ash Sanders and Sarah Venter about their award-winning podcast, Unfinished, Short Creek. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we're talking to Ash Sanders and Sarah Venter about their podcast, Unfinished Short Creek. It's about a small community on the Arizona-Utah border that is dealing with its past as an FLDS enclave and a future that is inclusive of believers, ex-believers, and others. Let's get back to our conversation. Sarah, you chose to embed and live in Short Creek. Like, how did how did you come to that decision? And did that was that critical to you being able to bring this story out 
Yeah, it was. So if you spend time in Short Creek and you talk to people who live there, the most common thing that you hear, regardless of someone's religious status, so whether they're a believer or an ex-believer or a non-believer, the thing that everybody says over and over and over again that they have in common is that the media does not get the story right and that the media misunderstands Short Creek They swoop in for a short period of time, they get a few kind of choice cuts, um, use them maybe with context, maybe without, and that they kind of leave, they tell this sensationalized story, and then they leave and the people in the community have to deal with the aftermath of that story. And so to me, the most logical thing when I kept hearing that over and over and over again is like, what is the way to combat this as a reporter? It's to spend a bunch of time there. And the way to spend the most time there is to actually live in a place. Mm. So it was important for me on kind of on two levels. The first is that I think it gave me a special insight into the community that I would not have otherwise had. Um, There were a lot of times prior to this where I would go up for a reporting trip um, and I'd stay for a few days or maybe a week. um, And then maybe like the day before I left, somebody would say, oh, are you going to be here next week? Because there's this thing happening on Wednesday night that you should go to. And it was really hard to always say, oh, no, you know, I have to go back to Phoenix, but I'll come back again. So I wanted to be there for an extended period of time where I actually had the freedom to kind of engage with people and listen to what was important to them and show up at those places. Um, I also was able to be, it's a small community, so I was able to be at lots and lots of community events and people got to know me that way. I showed up at every city council meeting, most utility board meetings, every kind of community get together. Um, People, you know, invited me to their house for dinner. So I was able to kind of see people in lots of different settings, which helped me get a better, more complex understanding of them and of the community. And then kind of the reverse of that is that it allowed people to see me in a more vulnerable situation. So I think as reporters, there's this power differential that we don't always talk about, where we as journalists are asking people to tell us really intimate details about their life. And in the case of a story like this, you know, we're really asking about the most intimate details of their life. We're asking about their faith, uh, their family, their beliefs, what drives them, what is home, what's important to them. I want to make sure that, let's see, Norma Richter, this is Sarah Ventry. I want to make sure I have your permission to record uh, and that it's okay to broadcast it in a podcast from Stitcher and Critical Frequency. Yes, it's okay as long as it's all positive. <laughs> I cannot promise that. <laughs> oh, dang. <laughs> I, can't, I can promise my absolute goal is to be as respectful as possible, but um, I cannot promise it will be positive. You still good? We're okay. <laughs> okay. All right. We might be asking them to talk about trauma. So that's a lot of vulnerability, and it's a lot to ask of somebody else to share all of that information with you. And then to have them trust that you are going to take that information, synthesize it appropriately, and put it back into the world in a way that actually reflects who they are and what their experiences are. And I think that it is important for us as journalists to recognize that we're doing that and then to allow ourselves to be a little bit more vulnerable 
when we interview people and when we spend time with people to help break down some of that power differential. So for me, um, living in the community and say, you know, maybe I had to run to the grocery store when I was not uh, super put together first thing in the morning, or um, people saw me that sometimes the city council meetings would go really, really late at night, like till 11 or 1130. And they might see me kind of struggling to focus at 11 or 1130. Or they could invite me over to dinner and ask me questions about myself and my family and my religious beliefs. And my policy was always that I tried to be as much of an open book as possible. You know, if people ask me about who I was, I wanted to tell them and I wanted to give a little bit of myself so that they could know me and and really decide if they trusted me to tell their story. So I think that like showing up to places is really important and rarely are we given the luxury, but knowing that this was going to be a long form project and knowing that the production was going to take over a year, it was really important to me to be able to dig in in that way. I know for sure that I met and spoke with people who I wouldn't have otherwise, and that my understanding of what it was truly like to live in the community was much more nuanced and much more complete because I spent that time there. It sounds almost like an an anthropological approach. You embedded, you were observing, but then at the same time, you were engaging and sharing yourself and participating in conversations. Did you ever have people come back to you, you know, that you had come to know who listened to themselves in the podcast or listened to, to the series and were upset or were frustrated with the way you presented it? Yes, I did. So I will say... Generally, the reaction from people who were in the podcast was very good. Most people, um, you know, reached out to Ash and I to let us know that they thought we had done a good job. There were people who reached out because they felt like we didn't give them a fair shake or that there were people in town that they were at odds with who got maybe more airtime or whose story was treated in a different way than theirs. So there definitely like was some pushback from people. And I think it's also really complicated as we move into a time where we are redefining kind of what the role of a journalist is. We're talking a lot about what it means to be objective. We're talking about the fallacy of objectivity. And we're talking about how to tell stories when we all have bias about the stories that we're telling. As you said, this was a little bit more of an anthropological approach, embedding in the community, there isn't like a really strong template for it. I kind of call it ethno journalism. There's not a lot of people who do it. So what happens is you can get into a lot of situations that are tricky, where The line between you being a journalist and the line between you being, uh, you know, somebody's friend can feel really blurred. And I think it's really hard to draw those lines. And I know I did the best that I could. And I know I didn't do it perfectly. And I think there were people, you know, I think that that amount of vulnerability that I showed and that I tried to allow people to show to me was really helpful in getting to know the community and getting to know people in a very deep way. But I think it is also hard because people form relationships with you. I don't think I did it perfectly, but I also sort of felt like in some ways I was charting new waters. And in doing so, I know it can get rough sometimes. Ash, what were your concerns? What were some of your feelings about taking this approach, developing relationships and getting to some of these incredibly personal narratives, some of which touched on trauma? Yeah, so I've never 
personally been in such a charged community as Short Creek um, when it comes to questions of, you know, truth and reporting and how you're going to tell a story. One of the first things I noticed when I was reporting on Short Creek is people would come up to me and say, I want to talk to you. And I would say, great, why did you want to talk to me? And they'd say, because I want you to tell the right story of this place. And other people would be really reticent to talk. And I'd say, why don't you want to talk to me? And they'd say, I don't think you're going to tell the right story. So there was this very, very, very like top of mind. Are you going to tell the right story? Depending on who you're talking to, that right story was very different. That's reporting in general. But in Short Creek, we would talk to some believers. We'd say, well, what does the right story look like? And people told us everything from, well, when you come to town, you shouldn't stay in town because this is God's land and we don't think it's right that you're here. Or we don't think that you should quote ex-believers and their stories because they're not telling the truth and that's favoring them and making us look bad. We had basic facts that we would bring people uh, as journalists that we had to ask about and they would just say, you know, that's not true. You know, we had people in the podcast, one of our sources talks about, you know, how Warren Jeff's um, confession uh, that he did do what he was accused of doing um, was probably fabricated or spliced together. So, you know, you're in situations where there is no agreement on what the truth is, but everybody has been so hurt or the stakes are so high in the community that every word one way or the other is a really big deal. On the other side, we had ex-believers say, I've been through trauma and we want our story told because our story has never been told. Everybody has this huge vested interest in how the story is going to be told and completely different standards for weighing that story and deciding whether they think it was a fair story. So for us, one reason that we really wanted to spend a lot of time there we tried to talk to as many people as we did is we thought, you know, we can't resolve that for people. The best thing that we can do is let as many people who are from the community tell their own experience and be in conversation with each other. That is difficult when you're trying to get people to talk about something that's very traumatic, something that nobody can agree on. But really letting that conversation between those people in the town be the way through for our audience to figure out what they think is true and what kind of story they believe about this place. What I hear you saying is we're not trying to interrogate their truth. What we're trying to do is lay out the perspectives of different people who see truth through their own experience. That is part of it. But then, you know, you come in and you're like, well, I'm also a journalist. So my job is also to do rigorous fact checking and to say, actually, what you're saying is, you know, not supported by anybody we talk to or by all these court documents. So it's a really fine balance of, you know, Sarah spent hours talking to some of the people on the show off the record, building up relationships, and then also had to turn around and ask them really hard questions about, you know, their profit being accused of sex crimes or their personal lives. So it was a tricky balance because we wanted to really let people talk and tell the full story and let listeners get inside the heads of believers and ex-believers and think, okay, all these people make sense from their own perspective. Why is that? But we also as journalists had to push people and hold them accountable to facts. It was a dance for sure. 
I wonder how much of the interest in Short Creek is also connected to a struggle that's unfolding in this country right now. And religion does play, beliefs do play a significant role in what people believe and what sources they trust, if it's coming from the government or if it's coming from experts that they don't necessarily value or have faith in. This also touches on crimes and trauma, sexual trauma, particularly with young women. How did the two of you prepare uh, to do that kind of reporting? Did you find yourself working to think about what trauma-informed reporting looks like? Yeah, it was something that we thought about a lot. And it was something that I think had to be front of mind. There were people that we spoke with who experienced sexual trauma. But I think that most, if not all people in Short Creek have experienced some type of trauma, whether it's religious trauma, spiritual trauma, the trauma of being evicted from their home, the trauma of feeling like the community around them is changing and they're losing hold of it. For believers, I think that there were people who felt like they experienced trauma because their prophet was accused of and convicted of sex crimes and sent to prison. So it's fair to say that everybody in town has had some part of their family has been affected by or split off by religious divide. The families at home, they burn all the pictures, they gather up the family and say, you no longer have a brother. And the whole family basically just writes you off right there. You're dead. Yep, you're dead. I mean, in fact, uh, they always come to you and say you'd be better off to die than to leave. I had to go and mourn the death of my family so I could move on mentally. It was literally killing me knowing that my family was 45 minutes away, but I could never see them again. And I could never give my mom a hug. I would never be invited to funerals. I was just completely cut off and isolated, but I was only 45 minutes away. And it took a lot of years to get over that. It's just like a very complicated community where everyone has experienced some type of trauma. You know, we did want to absolutely engage in trauma-informed reporting, and we also realized that we had to be extremely sensitive and thoughtful about the way that we were approaching people and talking to them to recognize if and when they had reached a limit, even if they didn't articulate it. To have that moment of looking up at my mother and just seeing the most intense pain and an emotion that I didn't quite understand until I became a mother myself. And it really solidified the realization that my mother had no control of her own life and she had no control of her children's life. And in an essence, it planted that seed deep in myself that that was my future, that was my fate. Was that conscious or did you kind of back up the brain and keep going faithfully? It was the back of the brain Everyone in the FLDS had this saying that said, put it on the shelf. And this, this saying was just this, this subtle and not subtle reminder that questions are not allowed. If it doesn't make sense, you don't have the right to ask it, put it on the shelf. And it will all be sorted out in heaven. I grew up Mormon and we had the shelf 
thing. The shelf. So, yeah. The dang shelf. At a certain point, <laughs> there were a lot of things on that shelf, and I think it just broke. So. It, it does, and that's the process. That shelf breaks. One of the things that people had told us is that, you know, you journalists come in and write these stories and then leave, and we're the ones that have to deal with the mess. And so if you publish information about us that is difficult for us to process or that brings up all kinds of really tough stuff, like we're the ones that have to deal with it. And I think we were constantly thinking about that as we were producing too. Like, how can we you know, how can we do this in a way where we inflict the least amount of harm? How can we tell the story that we want to tell without re-traumatizing people? Um, and also, I frequently had to remind myself that, yes, I'm a journalist, but I'm a human first. And it was really complicated because I did have a lot of reactions to what people were saying, and it was difficult for me to process them too. I know that some of the folks that we interviewed um, in from Short Creek who were in the show said they had to listen to it at a certain pace or they had to wait to listen to it for a while. Um, but I think that something that we tried to do in general is to acknowledge that this story contains a lot of trauma and different individual traumas, but we didn't want to tell it the way that is often told as kind of a litany of traumas. This horrible thing happened to this person. This horrible thing happened to this person. This prophet did these horrible things. Obviously, those things happened, um, and we are going to talk about them, and they're in the story, but we also wanted to show people as full people. We wanted to talk about why many of our sources, including ex-believers, talk about their childhood in Short Creek as a really magical time, by and large. And we wanted to talk about the reasons people love the community and return to the community. Really surprising stories of forgiveness between people, um, other stories that are much messier and more complicated. talking with Ash Sanders and Sarah Venter about their award-winning podcast, Unfinished Short Creek. It's about a small community on the Arizona-Utah border that is dealing with its past as an FLDS enclave and a future that is inclusive of believers, ex-believers, and others. Let's get back to our conversation. Are there particular characters uh, individuals in the series that stand out for each of you? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. When we were, you know, starting to put the podcast together, we looked and saw we, you know, had 100 plus hours of tape and all of it felt like gold. There are just so many fascinating people in the community. For me, one of the people I was most drawn to uh, is a woman named uh, Dania Jessup, and she is uh, somebody who grew up in the community as a believer and who fought for years and years and years to be accepted by the community, even though she did things a little bit differently than them or wasn't maybe the exact right kind of FLDS person um, and struggled and struggled and struggled to belong. And then finally realized, wait, this religion is hurting my children. It's tearing apart my family. I can't support it anymore. And did a lot of really courageous things to leave the church, to leave the community, 
to rebuild a life outside. She, like so many other people in Short Creeks, was shunned, was cut off from her community. And you think maybe that's where her story ends. But she chose, like so many other people in our story, to come back to Short Creek because she felt like, even if this isn't where I was allowed to belong, this is where I belong. This is my community. This is where the people I understand live. This is where the problems I understand are. When the federal government said, basically, this is no longer a church town. It can't be run by the prophet. The prophet can't run the government, can't run the police, can't run the schools. She came back in this time of a lot of uncertainty and change, and she decided to run for mayor as an ex-FLDS woman, which was kind of this unthinkable thing. So it's about her story to not just make change in defiance of, you know, the status quo, but go up against family members, cousins, etc., to try to make the changes she wanted to see. The living room is decorated with red, white, and blue balloons, and there are bottles of sparkling wine. In the kitchen is a huge spread. Veggie trays, dips, plates full of cookies, and more booze. Terrell Musser is sitting with a laptop hooked up to the big screen television, constantly hitting refresh. He's ready to announce the results as soon as they come in. When the results were certified, Donia won by 48 votes. So I want to thank everybody for their support, and I am not going to ball. I am overwhelmed. I am just like, we've been fighting this battle for a year, and now we know the real work begins. So we just got to stick to it and continue to rebuild this community. I'm so grateful for your support. Everybody can relate to, I think, going home to a place where you don't fully fit and aren't fully understood. She was a fascinating character and embodied a lot of what the kind of problems that we're having in our democracy in America at large and questions that we're having about our relationship as things become more and more, you know, extreme politically. Um, So she was also kind of this bellwether, I think, of a lot of things going on uh, nationwide. For you, Sarah, was there a particular person that really stands out for you as a story that you were really happy to be able to bring forward and one that has particular meaning to you? Yeah, um, maybe the person that I kind of thought about their story and how to tell it was actually Joseph Allred. Um, So Joseph Allred is a member of the FLDS Church. He is also the mayor of Colorado City, which is the part of Short Creek that's on the Arizona side. Talking with him was really complicated because as a religion reporter, I always want to approach stories about religion with a level of respect. His view is that sharing your possessions and living the United Order, it's about devotion to God. It can solve the ills of society if it's done the right way, and if the author of it is the Lord God, 
old people getting taken care of and young people staying busy and all the things that you would think of in a utopian society. Do you remember when you were 19 and you got the permission to build the house and that crew of people came over to help you? Do you remember what that felt like? I do. I, I do. I remember what it felt like. The, the feeling of camaraderie, the feeling of brotherly love. And when people can feel that godly, honest love for one another, really the, in the United Order, the only competition is whether I can see if I can bless you more than you can bless me. So, yes, it, it, it is the way of the gods. It's, it's perfection on earth. It was complicated because there were things that I needed to ask him about the FLDS church that are really uncomfortable, like the fact that his prophet is in prison for sex crimes, like the fact that Joseph Allred himself was asked about engaging in underage marriages and in court and refused to answer the question, pled the fifth. For me, it was really complicated and challenging to try to come at a, a religion story with having, you know, an inherent idea of wanting to share someone's beliefs and their perspective from their own perspective without lots of judgment, and at the same time, wanting to make sure that we do the work of holding people accountable when necessary. A lot of religious communities, the FLDS folks are not unique in this. Groups that become more insular as a way of protecting themselves from judgment or from challenges to the norms and the mores and the beliefs that they have. It gets really challenging thinking about how do you respect the religious rights of a community that is persecuted and misunderstood while also maintaining the government and the society's responsibility to protecting the most vulnerable members of that community I mean, absolutely. I think that you basically articulated one of the core tensions in the entire story of the history of, you know, the FLDS community, but also kind of the history of religion in America. So my dad was 12 years old, I believe, at the time of the raid the 1953 raid. And he told me about being dragged out from under the bed by a man in the uniform of the state of Arizona and how terrifying that was and how he was separated from his father for years, lived in Phoenix in a rest home with complete deprivations and hunger, and then finally being reunited with his parents, you know, and I just, and I heard about it every single day of my life. I heard about how the outside world and the government and law enforcement hate us because of our religion and that they're not to be trusted, and we don't ever report to law enforcement. And so when a Mojave County officer would drive into our town, I would go in the house and close the door. I absolutely learned that in my deepest cells. We wanted our listeners to understand the mindset of somebody who says, I don't believe in a lot of the laws of the land or in the American government. I'm creating something different, but I happen to be doing it inside of America. But of course, for the actual community of Short Creek, that led to very specific abuses um, that really harmed a lot of people. It led to sexual abuse. It led to Warren Jeffs and the people in leadership defrauding people. It involved people using the government and the police to kind of do their bidding. Ex-believers in the community, when they left, they lost their homes, 
They lost their families. Their children were often assigned to new people and basically given to new families. Women didn't have almost any rights in the community and were in a very vulnerable position if they left. If you stayed in the community, you know, ex-believers got their houses vandalized. They got threats. They weren't allowed to move back into the community even when they had a deed to maybe their childhood home because believers in the community didn't want them there. So we had to grapple with the fact that, yes, people in America have religious rights. Where is the line where those rights actually start to become abusive, where they infringe on, you know, other people's health and safety and welfare? And that was the question in Short Creek, and it was certainly the question in the trial. Essentially, what the court found is you can practice, you can believe your religion, you can practice it, you can do things that other people don't agree with, but you can't violate the rights of another person. And they found that the town in many ways was violating the rights of ex-believers by taking away their homes, by refusing to hook up their utilities, by, you know, uh by vandalizing or breaking the law to try to kind of push them out of the community. And that's where they landed. But it's still a live question. If you're a believer, you don't think of what you're doing as abusive or discriminatory. So yeah, it's a very messy, confusing question that I think you get when you allow these competing freedoms like we have in America. And that played out in Short Creek and has been for the last, you know, several decades. What lies ahead for the community of Short Creek? I think there's kind of an interesting thing that's happening where people are trying to really decide what they want Short Creek to be. Some people would love, you know, to capitalize on the fact that it is really close to a bunch of the Southern Utah parks. There are some people who think it's worth trying to capitalize on the unique history of the town and use that as a way to bring people to visit. And there are some people who I think would prefer to be left alone. Unfinished Short Creek is a podcast from Stitcher, Witness Docs, and Critical Frequency. It was named the number three best podcast of 2020 by The New Yorker, one of the best podcasts of 2020 by The Atlantic, and made the Bellow Collective's year-end list. Sarah Venter is an audio journalist based in Phoenix. Ash Sanders is a writer, prize-winning storyteller, and journalist based in New York. That's all for this week's episode. If you missed any portion of this week's show, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or at the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out by leaving a rating and a review. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>